Wasn't it fun to wake up today to negative four degrees on the, uh, I guess, on the phones? I was a little afraid that my car wouldn't start, to be honest, but uh, we're here. We are once again resuming our study on the minor prophets or those 12 little books that are in the backs of our Old Testaments, often neglected and, and collecting dust, right? And we've looked at four of them so far this, this past summer. We studied the 7th century prophets of both Habakkuk and Nahum, whose primary concern, if you remember that far ago, was God's just judgment on both Israel and the nations around Israel. Uh, but those two, they, they also reminded us that we serve a God who is sovereign, we serve a God who is in control. And like Paul explains in Romans 8.28, we serve a God who is ultimately working for the good in the life of the believer, even when it might not seem like it's in, in the present. Then, about a month after we looked at those, we began to look at the book of Jonah, who through his reluctant missionary journey to the nation of Assyria, and especially to the capital city of Nineveh there, had a word about offering mercy to all, but especially to those who uh, we might particularly not care for or we might have some barriers up against. That was Jonah's word to us. In the last book that we talked about together about two months or so ago was the book of, of Haggai. And he was a, a sixth century prophet who, who was sent by the Lord to the, to the remnant of the people of Israel who had just returned from Jerusalem uh, back from their 70-year period in exile. And so we'll be saying the word remnant a lot in this sermon, so I'll just remind you what that is. The remnant are the people who, who came from Babylonia and they returned to the city of Jerusalem. And, and if you remember, Haggai, he preached, he gave a word to a very, very discouraged group. They were disappointed with the way that their new temple looked. The day that they had just been dreaming of and, and longing for was not happening like they expected it to, so... In response, they began building up their, their own homes instead of the Lord's home. They began ignoring the very important responsibilities that the Lord had given to them. In other words, they began trying to make their own life work on their own terms instead of the way that, that God wanted them to do things. But Haggai, he did encourage them to, to remember the promise of, of God's future blessing, and, and he was able to renew their, their sense of, of purpose, at least, at least partially. Zechariah, the minor prophet we're going to be looking at this morning, he picks right off where, where Haggai left, left off. Uh, in, in fact, these two prophets, they seem to have been acquaintances, according to the book of, of Ezra. They, they both prophesied during the reign of Darius. They both preached about the Jerusalem, and they're, they're, very both, they're both very concerned about the, the temple and the, the returning remnant of, of Israel. However, while the book of Haggai is very much a historical document written in some pretty plain and easy-to-understand language, Zechariah is not so immediately accommodating. It's, it's pretty weird, to be honest. Like the book of Revelation in the book of Daniel, Zechariah is something called apocalyptic literature. And so there's your 10-cent uh, thesaurus word of the morning, apocalyptic literature. There's a whole lot of odd visions recorded in this book with, with angels and flying horns and scrolls and a man or something riding a red horse that, that patrols around the entire earth. 
There's women with stork wings flying a basket over to Jerusalem or to Babylon, and all kinds of really weird and kind of fun stuff like that. Uh, but, but nevertheless, even though it is bizarre, Zechariah is still very much profitable for the Christians today. There is a lot we can learn from this very weird book. Uh, so let me just read to you the portion of the book of Zechariah we're going to be studying this morning. This is the entirety of chapter 3. And then once I read, we'll begin with a word of prayer. So listen to this. And if you want to turn to Zechariah and you don't know where it is, just turn to the first book in the New Testament, Matthew, and just go about two over uh, the other direction. But this is Zechariah 3, 1 through 10. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebukes you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And he said to him, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, uh, for they are men who are a sign, or an omen if you have the KJV. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch, for behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, Every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your your compassion, your love, and and all that you did for us on the cross at Calvary. Lord, we, we know that we have been declared righteous before the Father because of the cleansing work of your blood, and we are forever grateful. This morning, as we read through your word to Zechariah, allow it to impact us in in powerful ways, and allow your Holy Spirit to to come here and work anew in our lives. And God, don't allow me to speak my own words, but only yours. It's the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray all of this. Amen. One of my all-time favorite books is, is a book called Animal Farm by George Orwell. Who had to read this in high school? Anybody? Yeah, okay, that's what I assumed. Probably a lot of us. It, when I read this back in high school, I, I hated it. I didn't understand it. Um, but just a couple of years ago, I went and I reread the book, and it just instantly became one of my all-time favorites. And for those of you who, who may not be familiar with it, though, Animal Farm is a, is a short little novel that tells a, a satirical story of a group of animals who go out and they they rebel against their cruel human farmer, and they, they eventually drive him out of the property. Uh, and these animals, they then uh, take control of their, arm, their own farm, and they eventually uh, they, they kind of make this, this new animal society that's based on equality and, and fair treatment for all the animals. And so there's these pigs, and there's dogs, there's a donkey, there's horses, and they've all got jobs, and they've, they've all got things to do. 
Although, spoiler alert for those who haven't read it, uh, although if you haven't read it by now, it's, you know, it's been out for a long, long time. But uh, spoiler alert, the society that they create, it does not remain completely fair for long. There's these two pigs named Snowball and Napoleon, and they decide that while all animals are equal, that was one of the, uh, their slogans they have, while all animals are equal, some animals are more equal than other. And these pigs, they then begin to stand on their back two legs and walk around, and they, they eat human food, and they even begin to, to live in the farmer's house, this cruel farmer that they, that they knocked out of there. It, it's, it's kind of fun. And an animal farm is clever because while it is a satirical story about some farm animals, George Orwell is, is really writing this novel way back in 1945 to protest Joseph Stalin and what he was doing in the USSR, right? Maybe you remember that discussion in English class back in high school or something. Um, a lot of people, they wrote about Stalin and, and the Soviet Union at that time in history, but, but Animal Farm, it really sticks out because of the genre that it was written in. It, it's creative in getting its point across, and it, it's memorable in the way that it does it, right? But, but, but Animal Farm is not unique in the way that it does things. If somebody back, say, in the 1970s wanted to protest the Vietnam War, they might write and direct a, a science fiction movie about the, a really large technological empire going against a small group of freedom fighters, and they might title their movie Star Wars. If, if somebody wanted to subtly fight racial injustice in the 1960s, they might write a, a comic series about a group of mutants and, and call their comic series the, the X-Men, uh, right? Uh, if, if George Orwell or George Lucas or, or Stan Lee had simply written about Stalin or racism, we, we might remember what they wrote, but because they artistically crafted their stories in such dynamic and exciting ways, their work lives on and it, it very much thrives even today. People like creativity. It helps, it helps us engage. And God understands this. In fact, he is the one who created us with such capacities. The book of Zechariah is dynamic, and the book of Zechariah is exciting. Because it's apocalyptic in genre, it is creatively and intentionally uh, presenting its, its material in a very, very specific way. Instead of just giving us a copy of a sermon, or a political document or a poem, the prophet provides for us glimpses into the visions that he has been given uh, from, from the Lord. But what makes Zechariah better than, say, Animal Farm or, or Star Wars, something like that, is, is while these visions that this prophet was given um, were given to comment on actual historical events happening in the life of Israel back in the 6th century BC, they themselves, these visions themselves, were also real and genuine occurrences. Zechariah, what he saw was not just something that he made up. No, uh, what is recorded in, in chapters 1 through 6 of this book are, are something that God gave his prophet, uh, these eight night visions. And he did that to creatively encourage and, and challenge the nation of Israel to continue forward. These visions are, are what that's for. And then in chapters 7 through 8 of the book, there's a response to God's answer to the people about these uh, this thing called the day of mourning, something that they'd been doing back in exile, and they want to know if they have to continue doing that. 
And in the last couple chapters of the book, 9 through 14, um, there are these, these reassuring oracles that God gives Zechariah about um, the future of the people of Israel and the coming Messiah himself. But why exactly did Israel need such a word from the Lord in the day of Zechariah? Why was God trying to get the attention of his people through these unusual and kind of weird visions? Well, let's, let's turn back to the first portion of the text that I read this morning as we look at it a little bit further. And so let me read it to you again. Here is the first five verses of Zechariah 3. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebukes you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the, the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And he said to him, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with, with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. So if you're a note taker, this then leads to the first uh, couple blanks in our notes, which, which read as follow. And, and by the way, I have to apologize right here at the beginning. The notes are a little bit messed up, the formatting in the bulletin. So um, that's on me. So uh, if you uh, want to point fingers or, or you're like me who are very critical about writing, uh, you can come and beat me up after the service, but uh, that's on me. Anyway, number one, Zechariah is given a vision in which Joshua the high priest is on trial for being unclean. The Lord then steps in and cleanses the prophet himself. Like I mentioned a moment ago, in this book, Zechariah is given a series of eight night visions from the Lord that all have something to do with, with Israel as a nation in the 6th century B.C. And this one in chapter 3 is, is the fourth one. But, but why exactly did God show Zechariah this, right? Well, we need to remember that at that time in history, a remnant of the people had just returned from exile in Babylonia uh, not much earlier. They had spent about 70 years or 71 years or so in, in captivity, because they had forsaken God and his laws. And while the the southern kingdom of of Judah was spared from the Assyrian invasion in 722 B.C., they really didn't learn from their mistakes. And and the Lord sent Babylon as judgment on Judah's unrighteousness, who then came in and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple itself in 587 B.C. But sometime later, a nation arose called Persia, and Persia came and it it wiped out Babylon. It it overthrew them. And, And Persia they allowed the captive Israelites to return back home to Jerusalem. And by our best estimates, it seems like about 50,000 Jews did. Uh, And and more so, this remnant, it was given some funding, some uh, some money by Persia to rebuild their destroyed temple. And this was very, very exciting news for for the people of God. It It was a very happy time in their history, at least initially. However... And again, if you remember from our our last sermon on the Minor Prophets with with Haggai, once this construction started, once they got back home, the people's excitement, it it quickly turned to disappointment. Their new temple, 
It was nowhere near the quality of Solomon's temple. It didn't even look close, and it didn't live up to any of their expectations whatsoever. But there were, there were a couple other problems, too. The Israelites, they were, they were disappointed in their temple situation, but were they disappointments themselves? A man named Joshua, not the Joshua from the book of Joshua, but a guy who lives much later on in history. Uh, this, this man named Joshua that Zechariah sees in his vision was, was to be the next high priest of Israel. And there hadn't been one of those things for a long, long time, not since Babylon killed the last one. Although, a part of the reason that God had sent Babylon to overthrow Israel was because that Israel stopped following God's laws. And a big part of, of God's laws are these things called Jewish identity laws, and they, they're very much concerned with ritual purity. Those who did certain sinful acts or other outlawed or, or taboo things would be deemed unclean for a time, according to the scriptures. And, and you could cleanse yourself of these iniquities by offering sacrifices at the temple, or on the, you could, the whole of Israel would be wiped clean on the Day of Atonement, but the nation hadn't had a working temple for, for over 70 years, right? So, so none of that was very applicable uh, to their situation. And what's more, for the high priest to enter into the holy places in the temple to offer sacrifices before the Lord on the Day of Atonement, he needed to be purified himself uh, many, many times over. But this Joshua, he obviously wasn't. How, how could he be, right? He was born in Babylon uh, not in Israel. He wasn't dedicated as a baby to the Lord. He had not offered the blood of a, a bull before God on the altar. He was not ritually clean whatsoever. Was, was Joshua really going to cut it as their high priest? Would he, would he really be able to atone for the sins of the people? Would God accept the sacrifice that he offered? Or did God just bring the people back into the land to play some sort of sick joke on them? Did, was, was God's hand really in this, them coming back to, to the land, or was it all by chance? Well, we, we get our answer to this in the vision that we see in Zechariah 3. In this vision, Satan himself has come before the Lord to bring accusations against this Joshua, the high priest, and it's because he's unclean. He's, he's not fit for the priestly position. And, and because of it, Joshua is now on trial before God in, in the heavenly court with Satan acting as the prosecuting attorney. But what makes this even worse is that Joshua is standing before the Lord in, in filthy garments. And by the way, the word filthy there, it is, it's not a very nice word in the original Hebrew. It, it's the word tza'ah which is, for those of you who like these things, it's the same word way back in Deuteronomy 28, 12 through 14, where there's discussion about properly disposing the contents of one's bowels. Uh, so I'll, I'll let you kind of fill in the blank as to what his garments are actually covered in here. But, but, but here's Joshua, completely unfit for service as, as high priest, and he's got on some seriously soiled robes, and Satan is poised and ready to accuse him of all of this. What a nightmare. What a disaster. There is no way that Joshua can survive this heavenly court. He, he's unclean. He is done for. However, before 
Satan even gets a chance to speak, the Lord himself interjects. God rebukes Satan, even, even though the accusations that he has against Joshua were likely correct. God steps in and he stops this process before he even gets a chance to start. And it, and it doesn't even end there. The Lord then sends out his angels and, and they remove Joshua's filthy garments and they replace them with clean robes and a fresh priestly turban. And remember that the book of Zechariah, it functions like Animal Farm and Star Wars does, in, in a sense. It, it, uses, it uses visions and symbols to speak about realities happening on earth and the original audience is present. Joshua's dirty garments, they, they represent the sins and impurities of the people of Israel as a whole. Zechariah was literally witnessing God's promise to restore the nation of Israel here. Their God was still with them. And not only was he still with them, but he still loved them. They are still his chosen people. Even though Israel did not deserve it, God was going to cleanse them of their filth, their uncleanliness, and remove their iniquities from them. What good news. But how is this going to happen, right? And, and, and what are the implications of this? So let's, to find out, let's, let's continue forward into the second half of this vision. Here we go. I went a little too far word. It says, And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. There we go, and it brings us to the second point of the notes, which says, then the angel of the Lord explains that God will one day raise up his servants, who will remove all iniquities and usher in a time of, of ultimate peace. So after Zechariah is shown Joshua the high priest receiving these clean new garments, he then sees the angel of the Lord commissioning him into priestly service. Actually, what, what the angel of the Lord says to Joshua is really kind of an echo of how the book of Leviticus talks about priests, especially Leviticus 18.30 and 22.9. So in a sense, Joshua is actually being ordained into the ministry here. And there's some very important things worth noticing in regards to this commission. First, it isn't until after he has been given clean robes that he's charged with, with service. It isn't until after he has been shown mercy as, as one who is like a brand snatched from the fire that he's then commanded to keep the Lord's charge. The, the order is, is pretty significant. The vision is, is making clear that it is not the case that the people of Israel have been saved through merit. Their, their good works and, and observance of the law have, have not cleansed them from, from anything. They failed at that. 
That's what sent them out into the exile in, in the first place. It was really only because of a gracious act of the Lord that anything was going to happen in here. The Lord, by his grace, was going to wipe clean their, their sins. In other words, by grace alone, God was going to grant them justification, in a sense, and then allow them to begin the process of sanctification. God was going to declare them righteous, and then he was charging them to conform themselves to their righteousness in their, their daily lives. But, but secondly, this, this commissioning, it serves to further assure the people of Israel here that, that God had not given up on them. Their exile was not the end of their mission as a set-apart nation. God still had a future in mind for his people, and this must have been, a, you know, been extremely encouraging for uh, the remnant as they lived in their half-destroyed Jerusalem and their, their half-put-together temple. Israel, they still had a purpose. But again, this, this justification, this cleansing, it was not going to come about by any sort of merit. No, it, it would really only come about through the servant coming called the branch. But who is this servant? And why is he called the branch? And more importantly, maybe, at least for some of us, what's up with the stone with the seven eyes? That's kind of bizarre, right? Um, well, the titles, uh, servants and, and branch, are actually used all throughout the Old Testament as titles for the Messiah. Just, uh, just like Isaiah, he actually refers to um, God's servants, who the Father delights in, in Isaiah 42.1. And then later in 53.11, he, uh, he calls the servants and describes them kind of like as, as one who is going to bear the iniquities of many so that they may be declared righteous. And the title, the branch, is, is pretty similar to this. The idea behind it is this. Um, King David's dynasty has been cut off. His family tree has been chopped down by the Babylonians, but the, the stump of this tree still lives, and out from this stump is growing a new shoot or a new branch. It's kind of like the picture that I have here to explain this a little better. Um, in Isaiah, he, this actually comes from uh, Isaiah chapter 11. You can kind of see it on the screen, but he says that one is going to come forth from the line of Jesse, David's father, and this branch is going to bear much fruit. And then later on in the book of Jeremiah, uh, he declares that a, that a righteous branch will rule as king and execute justice on the land. It's, it's all Messiah language. It's all pretty cool, in my opinion. And, and I actually think that the business about the stone is Messiah language, too. This stone set before Joshua in, in Zechariah's vision has, has seven eyes or seven facets like a gemstone depending on which translation you're looking at in your Bibles right now. But um, to be honest, I have no idea what the seven eyes or the seven genstones piece means. I spent several hours, honestly, looking through commentaries this week to try to figure this out, and, and nobody really seems to know. So I don't feel too bad about giving any sort of answer up here. But, uh, but the Messiah, he is referred to as a stone in several places in the Old Testament besides this. In Psalm 118, if you remember, uh, he is the stone in which the, the builders rejected. And then Isaiah 28, he is the, the cornerstone, the foundation of the, the true temple. So this servant, the branch is coming, this, this cornerstone, this Messiah of God. And in a single day, it will be he who removes the sins of the people. And on this day described in Zechariah 3.9, this, this day is going to be a lot greater than the normal day of atonement that, that happened every, every year in the life of the Israelites. 
the Day of Atonement, as described in Leviticus and overseen by the high priests, that day could only remove the iniquities of the people for a short while. It had to be repeated every single year. It was not the final solution to the sin problem. But what the angel of the Lord is describing to Zechariah here is something far superior. We, we know that because of the effect that it has uh, in, in the next verse. On the day that the sins are removed, people will happily invite their neighbors to come under their vines and also to come under their, their fig trees. And that might not seem like a whole lot to us. We don't have vines and, and fig trees growing in our backyards, but that is an ancient way of talking about prosperity and a whole lot of, print, a whole lot of plenty. On the day that the branch will come and remove all the sins in the land, he will also come and bring about total peace. In other words, there is a day coming soon where one from the line of David will arise, the Messiah, and he will graciously bring rescue by the forgiveness of sins. And I hope it's clear how all of this is so relevant to, to us now. It's the gospel. It's a, it's a description of our only hope for salvation that was later fully realized through Jesus, right? It's, it's pretty amazing. When I read through the book of Zechariah, I'm always astonished by chapter 3, how, how awesome this is. But to, to quickly think about this a little bit deeper, I do have two quick points of application to, to flesh us out a little bit more. And so here is the first one. Through his work on the cross, Jesus has graciously offered forgiveness to all who would believe in him. If you're anything like Tori and I, and I did get her permission to share this, uh, just for those who might be wondering, if you're anything like Tori and I, you might have some secluded area in your bedroom or maybe your basement where you've just got this ever-growing pile of dirty laundry waiting to be washed, right? And Tori and I, we, we live in an apartment, and we don't have washer and dryer hookups of our own, uh, so that means we've kind of got to plan out when we want to wash our clothing and by taking it to the laundromat about once, or, once a week or so. But, but sometimes our pile of dirty laundry, it, it, uh, it builds up pretty high before we, or, or really me, before I cave in and begin the process of uh, actually going out and washing it. It's, and, and I really don't know why, but this is my least favorite chore to do of all time. I do not like the, taking the time to go out and wash my clothes, even though it needs to be done. And I especially hate folding it all when it's all over. Um, if you're anything like me, though, you've also got some dirty laundry in the figurative sense, too. We, we all do. It's called sin. The, the prophet Isaiah puts it like this in, in 64.6. All of us have become one who was unclean, and even our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Since, since Adam and Eve, you know, since back in those ancient of days, all of humanity has been plagued by sin, and the wages of sin is, is death. And unlike the literal pile of dirty laundry in the corners of our rooms, this, this sin problem, it, it can't be ignored. More so, we, we can't just go out and take care of it ourselves. We're helpless. We can't wash away these types of, of stains. But thanks be to God who has made a way for us to be clean through his blood. The vision that Zechariah received foreshadowed the work that Jesus did 
to provide cleansing for all people. What, what Zechariah saw was, was Joshua the high priest receiving a new clean change of clothing to, to replace his filthy, disgusting garments, not because he deserved one, but only because of the grace of God. And it, it's the same for us today. We, we can't save ourselves. Not even our best works could, could cleanse our unrighteousness, but because of Jesus, those who put their faith in him are declared righteous before the Father. Even the worst of the worst can be saved through Jesus. Even those whose lives looked like the soiled robes that Joshua was wearing, even they can be forgiven. And in fact, God was so willing to do this that he came to earth himself and died a painful death on the cross to make it happen. Our filthy garments are removed in Christ, and we are given a clean new robe because of the cross. And what wonderful news that is. Amen? Amen. So if God has not rescued you from your sins, you must let him cleanse you by his sovereign grace. If, if you get anything from this sermon today, that is the most important part. Not the stone with the seven eyes or the goofy apocalyptic literature stuff. That's the most important part. That's actually the most important thing you could ever do in your entire life. But if he has rescued you, the Lord might be trying to currently encourage you to continue forward like he was doing with the remnant of the people of Israel way back in the 6th century. And this then leads us to the last piece in our notes, which says this. God uses cleansed sinners to serve him as they walk in his ways. Every now and then, we might feel accused by Satan or, or by our consciences for, for sins that we have already confessed to or repented of or been forgiven for. Or, or, or sometimes, we may even have a, a hard time feeling that we are really truly clean in God's eyes. I mean, this was Israel's struggle back in the days of, of Zechariah. They'd been in exile for 70 years because of the great sins of the nation. And, and when they returned, it was not much better. Their new temple was subpar at best. Their, their high priest wasn't ceremoniously clean according to Levitical standards. They must have thought that they were the biggest disappointments in the world. How could God ever use them? But, but through this vision, the Lord reassures the people that he had not abandoned his covenant. He still loved them. And despite their shortcomings, he was removing their sin, and he was going to recommission them as his priestly nation. And God has done something very similar for believers today. The Lord loves us so much that he was willing to come and die so that we might experience life with him. And alongside of all of this, he has also charged us to, to walk in faith and to conform ourselves to his righteousness. As believers, Jesus has not only made the way for justification, but he has also invited us into the process of sanctification. In other words, he, he cleanses us and then he commissions us for service. He wants to use us for his glory. God has great plans for those who have been cleaned. You have been chosen by God. He has not abandoned you. No matter our pasts, our failures, our weaknesses, our self-doubts, no matter any of that, the Lord's desire for us is that we become his disciples and learn to walk in his ways. And so the question is, do you know Jesus, the branch of David, the Messiah, he has offered to remove your filthy garments, and he wishes to replace them with, with clean robes. Have you already accepted him as if Savior? 
If then, go and, and keep his charge and walk in his ways. Let's pray. Lord God, we, we bow before you with, with love and gratitude because you provide for us someone to answer the accuser so that he cannot accuse. We stand justified and accepted and received and adopted members, not only of your kingdom, but, but sons and daughters around your own table. This is an extraordinary thing. Let us never forget it as we strive to walk in your ways. Let us also never forget that we too are our brands snatched from the fire, saved from our sin and your wrath through Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.